Hi, everyone. It's uh, wonderful to be with you today. I'm Linda McCauley, the Dean of the Nell Hudson Woodruff School of Nursing. And I want to thank everyone. I know some of you are just still coming into the room, but we're thrilled to have you with us today. I have two esteemed colleagues joining me for this webinar, Sharon Pappas. She is the Chief Nursing Executive at Emory Healthcare and the Woodruff Health Sciences Center senior leadership teams. Uh, she's responsible for nursing practice across all of Emory's hospitals, ambulatory care, and post-acute agencies, and uh, is very involved in uh, Magnet, and we have four Emory healthcare hospitals uh, designated as Magnet, and so she really... Um, seeks to have nursing excellence as a distinctive competency throughout Emory Healthcare. And Sharon has agreed to moderate the session today. And then I also have Tim Porter O'Grady on board with us today. And he's a clinical professor here in the School of Nursing. He's the senior partner at the Tim Porter O'Grady Associates. I imagine both of these two individuals are well known to the people who are joining the call today. Tim's been involved in uh, healthcare for 48 years and he's held roles from staff nurse to executive in a variety of healthcare settings. He does has this international consulting firm that specializes in health futures the Organizational Innovation, Conflict and Change, and Complex Health Delivery Service Models. So how do, you may be asking yourself, what's the purpose of this webinar? And those of us uh, hosting this today, and we hope uh, those of you joining us realize that the nursing profession is really at a critical crossroads. We think it's a pivotal moment in the profession. We've had them before, and we think we are at that point again in our history, and, and that uh, leadership in the past may not serve us well for leadership in the future. Um, what's needed, the leadership that's needed today challenges some of the historical underpinnings of nursing leadership. And so what we wanna do is be disruptive in this webinar. We want to talk about existing paradigms that aren't working for us anymore. See if we can get energy in the room and engage each of you in thought-provoking conversations. I want you to think about this as having lunch with us, talking about critical issues that um, need really um, high level of leadership to, to grapple with these important uh, things that are upon us. We've all heard the statement, gee, I wish we just had more time for discussion that, well, this is your chance. We have designed this webinar where, we, of course, we're going to learn from Tim. You can't engage in a conversation with Tim Porter or Grady and not learn, but we'll also have a chance to have a dialogue with him. Um, and significant, we've added significant discussion time in every webinar to have you engage with us. And we're hoping this conversation and engagement will lead to important things that we can go on to write. We reached out to you to participate because of the space that you hold in this field. You have um, extraordinary potential to positively turn the direction of nursing or to impact the future of nursing, your perspectives are really important. And so we want you to engage with us in this conversation. I hope you get some insight from what other clinical and academic leaders are saying. I hope this is an update for some of you on what, what the policy, the advocacy, the education, the scholarship trends are that's in, in, in front of us right now. And we wanna hear from you about how we can amplify these voices. Um, one of the things that we really thought about is we read thought-provoking editorials and commentaries and we're like, gee, did you read this? Did you 
we forward it to a friend. We say, you ought to read this. This person is really talking a very about a very important topic. Um, we got inspired by this the topic for today, which is abandoning blue collar nursing leadership. Pretty thought provoking. What is blue collar nursing leadership? What do we need to abandon? Uh, this was a, ten, a, a commentary piece that Tim Porter O'Grady wrote, and he shined a light on a long unaddressed and substantial issue affecting U.S. healthcare today in the wake of um, the global pandemic. And he is going to tell you more about this, but he looked at the critical role that nurses played during the pandemic response and the unique leadership skills that were needed um, in this new age of practice that um, actually uh, was amplified during the pandemic. Um, and that's what we want to do. We want to engage Tim on why he wrote what he did, what it means, what other nurses need to do to push these ideas forward, or maybe some of us disagree with Tim about uh, what he says nursing should do. So um, before we get started, I wanna remind everyone to submit your thoughts and questions in the Q&A section of the uh, webinar that's gonna follow Tim's presentation. And your input's going to help us facilitate a thoughtful discussion. And we really want you to own your comments, tell us who you are, where you're coming from, and why this uh, discussion is important. So I'm gonna turn it over to Tim now to get us started. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Linda, and, and good, good morning and afternoon, depending on where you're located, everybody. Um, you're either having breakfast, having your morning break, or at lunch. So uh, please feel free to eat freely while I'm speaking. <laughs> um, I'm really honored to be the first in a number of, uh, of presentations we'll have over the next year. And it, it's a, a great opportunity to be able to kind of push the walls and raise the ceiling, which we hope this um, series will do. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy that we're beginning with leadership because if, if there was anything in the pandemic that caught our attention and delivered a message and informed us about uh, issues and concerns that were now transparent after the uh, uh, pandemic, it's leadership. Leadership at every level of, of our society, of our country, of the healthcare system, and all of the issues that emerge with regard to our understanding of leadership, to the content of leadership, to the framework for leadership, to the expression of that leadership, um, now at the fore of our consciousness and really a part of, as, as uh, Dean McCauley was suggesting, a part of the, of the transforming landscape as we look over the horizon ahead. Because one of the things that comes to mind for us in this time and in this place and these circumstances is that leadership certainly has to address that we can't do what we did before without arriving at the same outcomes. And that those outcomes are no longer the solutions for um, driving us forward. And so it becomes pretty important for us to begin to uh, recognize those solutions, if you will, and to be able to begin with leadership and to address some of the issues of leadership in a meaningful and important way. And to maybe reconceptualize our understanding of leadership in the contemporary age. You know, we're not, we're not in the 20th century any longer. We're not in the industrial age. And if you really think about it and you read the literature on leadership that talks about leadership theory or the drivers for leadership, most of it is based on leadership development that occurred in the 20th century, the industrial age out of the industrial scenario, if you will. And the challenge to that is it addressed certainly the characteristics of work and work relationships 
in an ownership environment, in a, in a highly developmental, innovative, industrial, capitalist environment, which was much of the driver of the, 20, uh, the 20th century. And that most of it developed in a vertically oriented organizational system and structure, which characterized the time and characterized the relationships that existed at those times between all of the people in those settings. So as we, as we emerge deeper into the 21st century and we begin to start understanding what the post-digital and post-20th century age looks like, it is virtually none of those characteristics as drivers as we move forward. Yet we still have in place in leadership most of our concepts, our understanding, we still teach those things in our graduate programs, in our leadership programs at the end of the undergraduate period of time, in our, <clears throat> in our formal and informal leadership programs and processes, still all grounded in that age that we no longer lead with a, 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 an organization, a set of uh, relationships, a work environment, that no longer defines where most of us do our work and spend that work time. So it now becomes critical for us to begin to start relanguaging in a way that demonstrates rethinking what the workplace is, what it needs, the characteristics of those of us that operate in this multifocal, multidirectional, multilateral, complex work environment that is fundamentally different from the settings that many of us as leaders emerged out of. And to take a look at all of the resources and the references and the information and the data that tells us a different story about life today, leadership today, work today, and for those of us in the professions, practice today. And to begin to start pulling those resources and the information that they share with us together, to begin to look at the intersection of that information, that data, and to glean from that intersection or the convergence of that information, an entirely different response, a different understanding first, then a different way of languaging where we are, conceptualizing it and translating it, and then a different way of responding to it so that we respond to it in kind. We respond to it in the place in which we are. And that we, we recognize at first as leaders is that the first work that we have to do is re or, or, or deconstruct our attachment to the traditional definition, definitions, theories, and values that represent the character and content of our leadership. That's the abandoned part. We have to be able to abandon, not what we know, not what we learned, that's not possible, but our attachment to what we know and what we learned so that we can be available to the emerging knowledge and the circumstances that are calling for us to understand and apply that emerging knowledge in a realistic and meaningful way. That is actually a critical role of the leader in the contemporary workplace. To be able to confront those issues, to look at the conundrums and the conflicts that generate from much of what brought us to today and the difference that that uh, uh, perceives for us in terms of what we must be able to conceptualize and, and define and language for where we're going which looks nothing like where we've been. So that, uh, that, that surrender, that, that leaving that space opens that place in our own minds, in our own capacity, in our own hearts, in our own leadership to uh, conceive our role as leaders differently and to come up with both the understanding of that translation and the language which would best demonstrate that. We now live in very complex systems at every level of definition, every metric of measure, every delineation of the social construct. If, if you look at what's going on in the Middle East today, taking a unilateral position related to it isn't going to lead to a solution. Taking sides, 
not recognizing the interface of the of the multiple issues and concerns and relationships and cultures and dynamics and views and politics and 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 social and cultural systems without considering the interface of all of those forces inside of the notions and processes and dynamics of solution seeking, there is no solution. And we remain constantly in a vortex of continuous chaos, chaos and undifferentiated processes. And that's not a way that we can thrive or survive. You know, you, you think about much of the cultural conflict that's going on in the United States, a good part of it is a conflict with our values that are historically grounded in our memories and our minds and our hearts and our experiences and the unfolding realities of a multicultural, complex, multilateral, mobile vehicle of human dynamics that involves a diversity of human beings that will never be extinguished. And there's nothing in the human experience that rationalizes or justifies our capacity to go back to anything. And if you go back to anything, you have to take all the considerations. I hear people, colleagues and friends of mine say, well, you know, it was really nice in a particular age, but you got to remember that you got to also be able to embrace the limitations, the constraints, the noise, the difficulties, the pains, the sufferings that were rep that re represented that age at a time prior to the availabilities, the technologies, the innovations, the creativity, the possibilities, and the constructs of the future that we have now that we had no possibility to access in those times. And when we think about nursing and we think about our profession, there is an important arena of, of shift and change and adjustment in terms of understanding who we are, what we are, and how that defines what we do and where we go, defines our essential and central value. Uh, value. Who are we? Well, you know, if we say we're a profession, that says something to the world. It means that it's saying some things about what we're not, or what we don't do, or what we don't express. In our profession, we can't be a job. We can't simply be a series of tasks or functions. We can't be a cog in a wheel that certainly performs a role in that. We can't simply be a part of the cost construct of the organization. We can't simply be somebody staffing a role or a position or doing a function. We can't just be a manpower workforce issue because professions are a social mandate. They are mandated by society. We are mandated by law and by disposition. We are positioned by society to fulfill a role it's asking us to perform that it can't perform itself without the body of knowledge, skills, and expertise that we bring to addressing that need that society sees as so important that it empowers the professions to address it. And in our case, the profession of nursing. And our commitment as a profession is to the health of the society that entrusts that journey to us. We manage that journey, which creates a different relationship between us. You know, we're not accountable to institutions. We're accountable to society. The regulation in society in all 50 states of the United States prohibits institutions from controlling nursing practice. The profession controls practice through the organs that society provides for it. We partner with institutions in the fulfillment of our obligation. We're not subordinated to them. Our relationship is at the agent of society. And so our work relationship in organizations and systems and agencies where we, we fulfill the obligations of our practice is an essential partnership that creates a medium, if you will, within which our prof profession performs and exercises its obligation. We're not an employee work group. And that is the challenge that we confront on the, on the cusp of this post-digital 21st century understanding of how you lead a profession. You lead a profession differently from how you lead other groups. 
because of the obligation and orientation and ownership of our practice that operates at the individual level and also operates at the collective level. And so a part of the article about blue collar leadership is that much of the principles of application of management skills and, and technologies and, and techniques were essentially developed and bloomed in a blue collar model. Now, as we recognize that we're talking about a profession and we're talking about the obligation of a profession that is a specific war role, we're talking about the accountabilities that every profession is uniquely and individually accountable for. Four major accountabilities to which all the professions have some major accountability and ownership for in expressing that social mandate, practice, quality, competence, and knowledge. Knowledge creation, knowledge generation, knowledge validation. All of that becomes a part of the foundational expectations of the professional worker. So as we look over the horizon, it raises questions about what is the management and leadership skill set and capacities that are necessary to manage a profession? What are the realities of that as we begin to understand the implications and impact of that in all the settings where we're leading professions? In this case, nurses, the largest single professional group in the healthcare system. And when we're leading professionals, we have to recognize that we are, we are, we are le not leading subordinates, we are leading peers. Now the skill sets, the capacities, the expression of management and leadership when you're leading peers is a fundamentally different construct than the notion of leading subordinates. It is a collateral process, not a vertical process. It is a relational process, not a control process. It is a substantive process, not an iterative process. And so when we begin to think about those dynamics and we begin to think about what that implies to us, we've got to begin to recognize how do we see the leadership role within the theoretical context that drives it in the arena in which we find ourselves. So if we take a look at the industrial age and we look at, at all the theoretical foundations for the theory that drove leadership development in the 20th century, it focused on the person of the leader, on the individual of the leader, the role, the skills, the characteristics, the elements um, in, in many stages and arenas of, level, uh, of healthcare. We hear today so much about transformational leadership because that's one of the late stage leadership models in the 20th century. But remember, transformational leadership is still grounded in industrial notions of the person of the leader in the role of the leader as agent of control in the system. And so while transformational may uh, address or identify the characteristics of that expression, it still demonstrates the foundations of leadership theory out of the industrial age. Now, a part of our challenge here is to begin to start recognizing that in the contemporary age, the post-digital age, the age of complexity, that the theoretical constructs now are much more integrative, intersectional, relational, and are driven by the complex interface of all of the forces that influence our ability to be and do and achieve. And that this relational dynamic redefines the context, the workplace, the focus and the function of work and those that represent the organizational constructs within which it unfolds and calls us to a different understanding, the role as of the leader as agent of those realities rather than simply the expression of personal traits, characteristics, or expressions, and the behaviors that represent that definition, which is the centerpiece of the, of the commentary and the article on um, blue collar management and the work of the professional workers in the age of practice in the post-digital complex adaptive system. And that that becomes critical for our understanding because we look at it, if we look at blue collar, the blue collar milieu 
and the professional milieu, you can see that they are fundamentally differentiated by the characteristics that they're associated with. And that now the definers or the contextual characteristics or the framework for the role of professional knowledge worker has entirely different elements which define or characterize it and call now for different characteristics in the leadership expression and in the role of leader in the professional community of practice, moving towards value-driven impacts and outcomes, moving towards a recognition of the contribution and significance and expectation and accountability of the professional worker, different from the more functional process-oriented uh, responsibilities that get assigned or delegated to the blue-collar worker or the blue-collar work environment, even in the corporate enterprise. So that becomes critical to our understanding of structure. Because remember, structure defines the context for behavior. You cannot change behavior if you do not have an accompanying changing structure. Structure either enables behavior or disables it and returns whatever new behavior you're attempting to get to whatever structure enables the behavior that exists at any given time. So that becomes critical to our understanding of the behaviors. But here again, look at the behaviors. The behaviors that are emphasized in all management foundations and theories in the traditional industrial model organization are all based on locus of control and vertical relationships. But in the professional organization, they are based on intersectional capacity, engagement, and fundamental relational integrity and relational connection. And that it looks at the role of leadership as agent of those realities. And it's not that there is a style of leadership that's preferred. The intersection, the dynamic, the structure, the environment informs what the skill set and demands of the leadership will be by virtue of its conditions, circumstances, design, or impact. And so you back into the role of the leader because the role is agent of that dynamic. So much of that means that we raise questions about in a relational environment, how is the table set? Who's engaged in the process of problem solving, solution finding? Who achieves contribution? And what is the value of that contribution? What is the accountability rather than the responsibility? Accountability focuses on the product of work. Responsibility focuses on the function of work. What is the fundamental obligation that we have with each other and to each other in the collective community of practice around which our outcomes are dependent? So all of that becomes really critical for us as we begin to understand the elements of professional leadership, behavior, practice, environment, and context, if you will, that redefines the role of a leader, both in, in the, in the uh, post-industrial age, but also in complex adaptive systems, and also within the context of the profession's role and the professional's obligation to the accountability and the mandate that comes from them being a social agent, an agent of society, an agent of the, the value that we represent, in this case, achieving and advancing health. Now, I know I've just scratched the surface, just looked over the horizon, just touched the top of the issue. But what I wanted to do is push what I could from the, from the parameters of our dialogue and maybe drill down in the dialogue with regard to issues or concerns or insights that we have collectively as we have our dialogue, knowing that we've just scratched the surface and that there's much more to engage. So why don't I stop there, turn it over um, uh, to Sharon and um, stimulate some conversation to uh, explore this, this further. Okay, thank you, Tim. And I can always depend on Tim to make me think. That is one of the qualities that he has to really push us out to places that we hadn't thought about. So, so what I'd really like to do is to, is to begin with a great question 
that Susan Spoelma uh, actually put in the Q&A that says, okay, so we love your article. We all believe what you're trying to, to present here and advocate for, but we bump up sometimes and work against the strength of a corporate structure, particularly with all the, the mergers and reorganization that's going on today in healthcare. And so the old healthcare hierarchy must also change in addition to us changing. So Tim, I'd love for you to apply what you just said to that comment on how we might begin to influence the structures that sometimes contain us and the structures that sometimes don't allow us to take these important concepts forward. What a great question. I agree. And I hope that all of you will stay for the 13 weeks it will take to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> but let me just touch it because I think um, such a, a good question. I want to share something that happened. Um, Sharon and I were involved in, in doing the new professional governance book. And we have a number of authors in there. And one of them was uh, Olga Yakusheva, who is a young, um, uh, gifted, and I think she's going to be on our series, um, uh, yeah. uh, economist, healthcare economist. And she has been working in healthcare economics and worked in the broader landscape of healthcare economics and had an epiphany one day as she was digging into uh, how are we going to resolve this array of complicated healthcare issues because there's so many stakeholders involved. And she was looking at the stakeholders' investment. And this is the aha that she got. I began to realize that almost every stakeholder in healthcare has a stake in the healthcare system not changing economically and personally, has a stake in the healthcare not changing, except for nurses. She said nurses were the only ones that don't have a stake in the healthcare system not changing. And she said, the reason I focus on nursing now in my economic leadership life is because if it's going to transform, if it's going to shift, if it's going to focus on what it is primarily um, uh, uh, directed to do socially, it's going to be nurses. And it's going to have to take nurses to make that shift. So a part of our obligation in our commitment to healthcare is to be able to address the system that is an impediment to our ability to address healthcare. And, and there are a number of things we have to do to do that. Um, again, Sharon and I talk about this all the time, and I'm sure you're talking about it in your, in your own leadership. We're on the left side of the ledger. We're on the cost side of the ledger. Now, colleagues, let me ask you a question. How does being on the left side of the ledger inform the leadership model that we apply every day in order to address left side of the ledger issues? Think about controlling a cost. You know, we're in the same cost line as laundry, as landscape. Now we may manifest that differently in terms of accounting, but that's where we're located. So how do you manage the ledger? Well, what do you want to do? You want to control cost. So control becomes the predominant dynamic in relationship to the organization's intersection and interaction with nursing. So you manage nursing on the edge. You want to tightly control that because that's an expense you want to reduce. It's probably one of the largest expenses if you only look at expense. And in leadership, if you look at how they're educated, what they learn, that's what they learn in terms of their administrative leadership role in MBA programs with regard to a control, to a cost. Now, one of the challenges that we have is to be able to change the structure of that and the language associated with that. How many of us as leaders use that language, use that approach, use that facility, use that capacity, use that design as a centerpiece of our leadership expectations because that's what we get rewarded for. And how does that inform what becomes the predominant primary leadership capacity? What if the, what if the issue is that you don't have to address that directly, but you have to raise the specter in your own leadership, in your own understanding, in our own profession, that if we don't move from the left side of the ledger to the right side of the ledger, there isn't much impetus for change. 
And so now we have to begin to ask a different set of questions. What is the value of what we do? What contribution do we make? How do we articulate that contribution? There are two metrics of value, an economic metric and an impact metric. Both of those are valuable. Both of those are related. They are intersectional. And so a part of the dialogue of the profession has to include how do we address those so that they become what we represent in our practice? They become what we demonstrate in our practice. And by, their, by doing that, we become the visual image of that contribution. And then that becomes our expression of relationship with each other, with the organizations, and with the society that we serve. Remember, one of the things that's really important to us is that we manage the journey of healthcare. If you ask, if the pandemic taught the world anything, it taught them the centrality of nursing at the center of the earth of healthcare and how we link, integrate, and coordinate the journey of health. And so now we need to translate that as leaders. We need to begin to address the structures and processes that translate that left-sided history to a right-sided pattern of understanding, conceptualization, articulation, and behavior in looking at value and contribution. I don't know if that helps, but... Oh, Tim, I think that's good. And I want to just echo Jerry Mansfield makes a comment on here that says, if the ROI model doesn't illustrate value in a compelling way, we're gonna to continue to struggle. So your, your points exactly. I'd like to go to Dee McCauley for a, a comment and a question. So uh, Tim, I really enjoyed your um, opening remarks about what a profession is. And um, I'm ashamed to say, I don't sit around every day thinking about the profession that I've chosen to spend five decades in. And, and thank you for that. But so, there's a huge disconnect in my mind about what is going on in healthcare and what the future is going to need and what nursing is spending its time on. And there are two things going on right now that I am frustrated that there's not more national conversation. One, um, the federal government has finally got on that there's a nursing shortage. It's pretty complex. And both the Republicans and the Democrats, the bills that they have put forward, is investing millions of dollars in ramping up the production of two-year nursing grads. And my frustration is if we're a profession that's accountable for society. How can we stop this momentum from, from rolling out? And then the second thing that I think a lot about, and we have a paper that we're almost ready to come out, is this, this push for practice ready. The whole concept of practice ready is in the first paradigm of the industrial age. In other words, you get an individual ready to hit that floor doing what they need to do. And it's not being implemented in terms of practice ready for the future. It's like practice ready for tomorrow. And unfortunately, some of our tomorrow in many, many, many places look like it did 10 years ago. And so I'm frustrated that the profession, the professional voice is not um, orchestrating that. So I don't know if that's a comment or a question, but um, I'd like to hear your thoughts on those two things. Well, again, that's a. I think that's one that's worth a, a whole. Um, conference session on that we can get. I mean, these are really seminal stuff. Um, let me answer your AD question this way. Um, and it's not an answer. It's just we're, we're tipping the, 
we're tipping the picture here is what we're doing. I'm an AD nurse, but I'll tell you what happened to me as an AD nurse. I had a professor in the AD program that said this to us every single week. We are giving you an entry ticket. An entry ticket. That's what you're getting. You're getting an entry ticket. This program provides you an entry ticket. I chose an AD program because I was the primary breadwinner of a family with a limited income because I wasn't a smart enough kid to go to college early and not leave high school before I graduated. So I was working in this plant and the only way I was ever gonna escape that set of circumstances is in the community college program. And by virtue of a number of things, I got in the AD program and was fortunate enough to have a professor that reminded me every day that this is, and she said, if you stay at entry, she would say to us, you will always remain at entry. You will always be an entry nurse and you will always make entry contributions. You will always have an entry mental model. You'll always have an entry skill set because it will be informed by your entry information. And so she says, you have an obligation to go on. It's not an option. You have an obligation to go on. 23 people in our class, 19 of them went on. That's pretty So it, it formed for me an understanding that yes, maybe there are a number of routes that need to be applied, but the linkage between one and the other and the notion that that is not a terminal point of reference. Any more than nursing assistant or LPN would be a terminal point of reference if we make the same argument. And that it's the linkage to the rest of the system that is missing, not so much the option to get in. So I'm saying to the Congress and to everybody, you know, I'm in Arizona with a $132 million grant from the legislature. Now the legislature had no clue what they were granting for or why. And so it was our obligation to translate those dollars into the best use we could find in creating the linkages, which refers to your second point. The reason that that, that issue that you identified is so predominant is that since 1958, we have never had a systematic, organized, substantial, sustainable transition to practice relationship between learning and practicing, like every other discipline does, that is a social obligation, a social profession. So we have struggled with creating a myriad of confusing, non-validated, um, non-deterministic, multilateral, if you will, models of transitioning people from learning into the practice environment. And without that landscape, without that platform, without that foundation, we are, we are simply floating across, hoping that whoever it is lands really well. You know, one of the things that we struggled with with the grant where the grantees saying, well, we'll define professional ready nurse. And I said, no, a, a practice ready nurse is a journey, not a definition. And there are lots of things that go into that definition. And if you wanna to get to that definition, you're going to have to interface competence, learning, and culture. And if those interface well and create sustainability and competence and, and high levels of impact and satisfaction, then you have a practice ready nurse. So practice readiness is a demonstration, not a definition. And that keeps us from being captured by it. Boy, that's going to be something I take with me there. But I want to move us back to, to a little different territory um, in these last few minutes we have for Q&A um, before I turn it back over to Linda. And uh, Tim Cunningham comes on and makes, a, makes an association with your comments about structure um, defining context to associating unions and all of the the strikes and everything we've had with with those structures. So the question from this is how do we foresee unionization affecting our profession in the frame of new leadership models across this nation? So any any comment there, Tim? Yeah, um, I'll share a discussion 
that I've had with a number of leaders, um, like Kaiser Permanente, for example, 75,000 people out at one time, yeah. the majority of those nurses. We got to remember that collective bargaining operates at Maslow's level of security. Collective bargaining is not a self-actualization dynamic. It's what people do when they're trying to assure their foundation or fundamental security, when it's not secured in any other way. And, and colleagues, let's be really honest. We're not talking, uh, 1% or less of nurses are in collective bargaining agreements. This is not a major thrust in the profession. But you know, it can be if organizational leadership doesn't recognize that if the fundamental Maslow uh, elements and metrics of security are not addressed, that the state provides a set of rights that people can access to address them. Now, that doesn't have to happen, but it will happen if it's ignored. Yep. And it's a legitimate response if, if, if ignoring it is the way of doing business. Um, I've never seen collective bargaining address the levels of practice we're talking about today. No. What collective bargaining does is addresses the failures of the organization and hopefully teaches the organization if we're not concentrating on professional actualization, we're gonna be at this doorstep forever. And, and so um, my particular perception, now this is opinion, this isn't evidence-based stuff now from this point forward, is that um, I wouldn't be concerned about collective bargaining, but I would be concerned about what collective bargaining implies about the organization and the system. And as a leader, that would be what I'd want to address instead of waiting around with fear that we're going to get collective bargaining because we failed to address those issues in the first place. Remember, it's not a mystery to us why nurses left us during the pandemic. The five or six studies, if you aggregate that together, including Linda Aiken's late study, four, four factors, same four factors, loss factors. Why did we leave? A loss of engagement, a loss of investment, a loss of support, a loss of leadership. And the interesting thing about the loss of leadership is when the leaders were interviewed, they expressed the same loss. Wow. So colleagues, if we don't address that, then is it any wonder that people operate at the security level of Maslow's hierarchy and seek an option that's available to them when nobody else will address it? Wow, Tim, those are incredible insights. And I'm gonna take one more liberty here to, to uh, go down a path that Tiffany Duncan has invited me down of what is Emory Healthcare doing to move nursing to the right side of the ledger? Oh, this would be another seminar on its own. <laughs> But I'd just like to say that we're working very hard to define nursing as to how do we mitigate risk of patients for something bad happening instead of a headcount. We're working to quantify the impact of avoiding adverse events. We're working to actually be able to have nurses report both financial and quality outcomes as we talk about the impact of the work we do. That's very high level. Uh, that's that's something that, uh, boy, if you want to send me an email, I'd be glad to get into further dialogue about that. But I think all of these things are important and all of these things are elements that all of us need to join together and begin to identify ways that we can talk about our value a lot more our, all the time and talk about our costs very little. So with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Dean McCauley to wrap us up. So thank you, Sharon. Um, there's so many uh, more conversations we could have about this. And this is why we, this is the first of many. It's uh, Tim, you challenged us with um, examining our profession and, and what we're doing and sharing your, thank you for moderating um, the conversations. We're going to save all the comments in the chat because there's some, interesting ideas, tidbits there for us in our planning going forward. It's people like who join this call today who want to make a difference in our profession and who are going to really ensure that we respond to what the critical needs are in the nursing um, field. And, you know, we're 
we're very uh, deliberate in the way we're structuring. This is just these web webinars. This is just the first of uh, many that we'll have. The next one is on November the 13th. And our speaker is going to be Sean Clark. And he, Sean is the executive vice dean and the Ursula Springer professor, professor of nursing leadership at NYU's uh, Rory Myers College of Nursing. But Tim, uh, Sean also serves as the editor in chief of Nursing Outlook. And he wrote a commentary about the need to for a fresh look at the nursing profession. So we, if you've not read that piece, encourage you to go online and, and read that piece. It's certainly a provocative title and he's gonna be with us to discuss why he wrote it. And we're gonna have a, a lot, hopefully a lively discussion around this pivotal, um, point in time for the nursing profession. And so the QR code is on the screen now. You can click on it right now and go, and hit, go ahead and register for the next seminar. And uh, as, as we do these, we encourage you as part of our audience, if you see a compelling piece, if you see a controversial voice that a nursing leader is taking, bring it to our attention. Just email Sharon, Tim, or I as uh, with ideas for possible webinars of the future, because we want it to be kind of a time that you just come together to get a, a fresh breath, to feel energized, to know that you're not alone in your concerns about uh, this pivotal point in time and where the nursing profession is going. So um, I thank each of you for being here today and I hope to see you and others that you tell about this webinar on next month, November the 13th at noon. Thanks everyone.